Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's news editor, Paul Wallbank. Hello, Viv. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello, Viv. And a little bit later, you'll hear from Greater Bank's Head of Marketing and Customer Experience, Matthew Hingston. He'll be talking to Tim Burrows about the lessons from its campaign with Jerry Seinfeld. It wasn't, I guess, supported necessarily in the way it could have been. So I think there was a lack of alignment between where the company, what the company was trying to say through Seinfeld and what the company was doing. The Royal Commission and the banking industry's trust battle. The Royal Commission is almost doing our job for us. As, as a mutual, we don't have shareholders. We don't necessarily have to make a profit. Obviously, we do to ensure the business is, is viable and sustainable. But what we do with that profit is ensure that we reinvest that back into the company and back into what customers want, which essentially is, is what the Royal Commission is trying to unfold and, and really change the cultures of, of some of the Australia's major bank. And the future of TV advertising for the finance industry. TV back in you know, back you know, 10 years ago was probably 90%, if not more, of our, of our media budget. That's dramatically changed. Uh, and TV, I see, is a, a support mechanism. Plus, in this episode, Sky News faces backlash from consumers and advertisers. The murky world of online video metrics gets more complicated. Andrew Bolt versus the Press Council. And 10 versus News Corp. So whenever people ask me how I am, my default response seems to be I'm busy and or I'm tired, closely followed by an observation that my phone, much like myself, needs a recharge. So saying I'm flat out to people has almost become redundant as it's always the case and it certainly feels a bit the same when trying to sum up the week that was in media and marketing in this podcast. It was indeed another busy one, so maybe I need a new adjective. First up, on Sunday night, the Adam Giles show on Sky News broadcast an interview with far-right agitator Blair Cottrell who advocates for immigration based on race. Regardless of Muslims or any other type of people coming into this country, what we lack in this country is national pride. Uh, in the same way a lot of Western countries lack the same, the same national pride that is necessary to galvanise the minds of the masses and to protect the people of this country against foreign ideologies, against the sort of shame and guilt complex which is being pumped into the soft heads of our children and into the heads of adults today as well. So I think um, if we can rebuild or reclaim our traditional identity as Australians, then uh, we may not even need a Donald Trump. We may be able to fix this situation ourselves. He has also in the past boasted about using terror and violence to manipulate women. And so the backlash began. This week, the show was put in recess and two new roles within the news team were created to try and make more of a safety net so that things like this wouldn't happen again. Sky News has said having Cottrell on was an error of judgment and now advertisers, including American Express, Huggies and Luxury Escapes, have pulled their advertising from Sky News. Sky News has apologised for the interview and said it's an error in judgment and it won't screen again. Zoe, you've seen Backlash before. How long do you think it will actually last? 
Well, each instance is completely different, but I think in this case, uh, you know, Sky News has, has had to make some changes, which suggests that it's probably bigger than than previous instances where controversy like this has caused scrutiny. Uh, this time, we saw Greg Burns appointed acting program director and Kaylee Bradford acting news director. Acting news director, sorry. Uh, what that suggests is that, you know, this isn't the first time that this has happened. There needs to be some changes in there to prevent an agitator like Blair Cottrell coming back on air. What we also saw this time was the resignation of uh, former Labor politician uh, Craig Emerson, who was a commentator on Sky News, resigned. So what we're seeing is people are actually getting fed up. And I suspect that, you know, backlash in terms of there'll be different kinds of backlash. There can be the consumer backlash and advertising backlash will probably last the week. Hopefully that will reduce now that they've actually put strategies in place and apologised for the mistake they made. But Paul, is it too little too late? If you were a brand marketer, what would it take for you to get back on board with Sky News? What assurances would you want? Well, it's a really interesting question, Viv, because we've seen this in the digital space, particularly for YouTube, with all the brand safety concerns. And this really has become a brand safety thing uh, with Amex pulling out uh, from Sky News over this latest debacle. The That was reported in The Hollywood Reporter this morning. So it's getting international traction. So you can see why these global brands are being to step back in exactly the same way that they have been on services like YouTube. So you'd probably be wanting to see some pretty pretty important considerations there. There's also a bigger issue here for Sky and for Foxtel, because of course, they've got uh, a prospective IPO coming up later this year. And that sort of brand name, you don't really want associated if you go into the stock market and you're trying to get that sort of um, traction in the marketplace as well. But Zoe, is there anything that Sky News can actually do? I mean, it's it's already happened. It's already gone to air. They've pulled it from social media. They're not going to run it again. How can they win back viewer trust? Well, they're in damage control right now. I mean, like you said, they've axed sort of removed it. I mean, Blair Cottrell's put it up on all his platforms, which probably hasn't helped the situation. But they've done all they can do. You're right. In terms of getting trust back, I think it's proof in the pudding. They say they're not going to do it again. They're going to actually have to ensure that they do not have these agitators on that are going to present a view that is so divisive among the Australian community. Uh, You know, I think it is a case of let's see what happens over the next few months. Let's see if these mistakes are made again. That's the only way to earn back trust, I think. And look, it is worth noting that Sky News isn't the only media outlet that's ever had Blair Cottrell on. But I think other ones are getting away with it a bit more because they apparently had more balance. So they had someone who could contradict him and and question his views and, and his world outlook. So part of the problem, I think, with the Sky News interview was a lot of what he said went unquestioned. Well, I think, too, there's another thing about that audience trust is that uh, the audience that they're trying to get for that late night and weekend segment is that that audience that seems to be, I don't know, somewhat titillated by this whole uh, right-wing agitator, whether it's Mila Yiannopoulos or uh, Blair Cottrell or uh, a senator saying silly things about a a female colleague, that seems to appeal to that particular audience that they're pitching towards in those slots. Of course, that creates that wider brand damage to Fox, Foxtel, to uh, Sky News, and to the advertisers on there. So this is part of that broader issue of uh, you may be a appealing to a small slice of that audience but it's not really going down on the bigger picture there well let's hope this is the last big controversy for sky news for the year 
Next, metrics are back in the news and who knew measurement could be so exciting. Now, Zoe, talk me through why the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the IAB, is no longer endorsing Nielsen's secondary video measurement tool. The basic reason that the IAB is no longer endorsing Nielsen's secondary video measurement is because originally Nielsen was defining a video view as zero seconds, which isn't in, uh, it's not the guideline set up by the Media Ratings Council. Uh, that guideline is two seconds. And ultimately what they're saying is you can't count a person as if they've watched a video for zero seconds. That's that's not a thing. Uh, it's nice that it's been finally recognised. It's been in market since January, but ultimately it just comes down to it's not a qualifying time to count a total audience. So Nielsen is the IAB's endorsed measurement company, which means a lot of publishers to sell their audience to brands and advertisers use the Nielsen metrics. And I guess part of the problem was off-platform video views such as Facebook are such an important part of so many publishers' audience strategies, but they weren't being counted. Then suddenly they were being counted, but as you say, it was – zero seconds, which so many of you out there listening would know, if you're scrolling on your phone on Facebook, sometimes a video just auto plays and you don't even want it to, you don't engage with it, you don't see who it's for. What I think the IAB is now saying is that's not good enough. That is not somebody who is an audience member of BuzzFeed or Mamma Mia, for example. They have to at least engage with that video or be seen to be engaging with that video for two seconds. But Zoe, I know that when the metric first came out, it was an opt-in and, and some publishers such as Vice and BuzzFeed did opt-in. Suddenly, because they are so video heavy and off-platform heavy, their audience numbers went crazy, didn't they? They did. So we saw BuzzFeed's audience was probably most notable. It swelled to about 14 times its size at the time, which obviously for publishers who don't have a, a massive off-platform video strategy that obviously put them out there going, hey, how are you comparing a publisher that has an off-platform video strategy to our audience numbers on our website? How is that coming all together under one thing? Which is the problem that I've sort of banged on about for a while now, which is this concept of engagement and measuring engagement within Nielsen's digital content ratings. When they decided to start uh, endorsing the monthly DCR figure, which we saw in two months ago. Previously, we had the digital ratings monthly figure. What we saw was a significant reduction in time spent on site, and that is because it's including off-platform uh, off platform audiences. So what we've got is a lack of a breakdown in where is this audience coming from because a zero second, as you said, Viv, on a Facebook is very different to a minute on a site on a particular article, and you can't clump these things together. So the likes of BuzzFeed, as you say, seemed to swell their audiences by 14 times once we finally started counting those very important people on Facebook. But some of them presumably were not fulfilling that two-second qualifier. So once Nielsen finally does introduce the two-second qualifier, which it has said it will do in January next year, the IAB has said, okay, then we'll once again endorse this part of the metric. Will we then see audiences for publishers seemingly drop because people will now have to be engaging with the video for two seconds or more? 
Well, I think so. Well, we won't specifically do so because at this stage that the metrics that, that we receive and report on don't include this element of um, the solution. I think for buyers, what you'll see is, yeah, potentially not probably to the same extent that the numbers rose, but definitely a fallback because you're now looking at, okay, well, who is actually engaging with this particular video? Um, and and you'll get a much clearer idea of who are the genuine um viewers of, of a BuzzFeed or a Vice or I think Pop Sugar was doing it as well. So I think we'll definitely see a change in those numbers. How dramatic it will be, uh, we'll, we'll have to see. And, look, there's obviously lots of politicking going on in the publishing and digital industry at the moment. Seven, Nine and News DNA spoke out in support of the IAB's decision. I'll be interested to see what your sources in the smaller publishing world have to say in coming days and weeks and indeed what media buyers think because part of uh, acting CEO Gay Leroy's rationale for doing this was the data as it stands is not robust enough for media buyers to be making accurate and informed decisions. I think there's one more thing I would add to that, which is definitely that this is the first time in a long time that we've seen the IAB and Nielsen not agree on something. I think for a really long time, publishers felt like the IAB was in the interests of Nielsen. And I think this is the first time that they probably feel that the IAB is actually in support of them as well. What we're seeing is uh, IAB is not going to endorse something that's not for the benefit of the wider industry and they will push back on Nielsen if it's not done. I think that's a really, really strong and positive step in the right direction for the IAB and Nielsen and for publishers as well. So more media politicking now with commentator Andrew Bolt, who writes for some News Corp publications, saying he will not answer any questions from the press council regarding an article he wrote about, once again, mass immigration. He won't, he says, be silenced. Paul, is Andrew Bolt really in danger of being silenced? And what role does that ever go-to argument free speech play here? Uh, well, there is no chance of him at all being silenced. Um, just like the earlier discussion around uh, again, around the weekend of Sky News, of which Andrew Bolt's part of that lineup, this is a group that panders to a certain audience and uh, gets that traction from publishers. And if the APC does find against Andrew Bolt, uh, they'll ha- the Daily Telegraph or the various other News Corp outlets that ran that piece may have to publish a retraction or an apology. It's not going to silence him, and I don't think anyone's going to silence him while uh, there is a section of the media that will um, give Andrew Bolt and those various other voices on that particular political spectrum uh, a soapbox to speak from. So this is all part of that uh, pandering to that certain narrow audience at the moment. And Zoe, what power does the Press Council have anyway? Can they silence Andrew Bolt? Well, no, (laughs) to to put it simply, uh, there's a few different things in this. Um, One is the fact that it was an opinion. Uh, Opinions are much, much harder to uphold um, or find in breach of uh, all the clauses and principles of the press council. One of the things when I was actually looking through all the guidelines, as I love doing, um, is that... uh, with opinions, factual material must be accurate and not misleading. Uh, now, there was a piece in The Guardian um, that was suggesting that the way uh, Andrew Bolt had calculated some data was was not accurate, whether or not that's that's one true or enough 
to to uphold a press council ruling is another thing. But ultimately, the press council doesn't have the power to completely silence anyone anyway. What usually happens is if a, if a ruling is upheld, they will either remove the article and put up a, a basically the the Daily Telegraph or whichever um, title had the article will put that up in replacement. But ultimately. Andrew can keep writing as much as he wants. And the Daily Telegraph, you know, we pressed them on whether or not they would obey legal proceedings and and they just said Andrew Bolt's an opinion writer and that's his opinion. So it, it seems as though, you know, everything will still go to plan and the press council will do the same work that they always do. The bigger risk I'd suggest on this, Viv, is that the uh, – again, that brand safety side of it, that if advertisers in the Herald Sun or the Daily Telegraph decide that they – don't want to have their adverts associated with this, that's when there becomes a commercial risk for them. So that's probably the bigger issue for News Corp with that. I'm not sure we're totally at that stage yet. I think people who are buying in the Daily Telegraph know what they're buying. They know that Andrew Bolt's in there. They know that Andrew Bolt has a certain stance on immigration and it's a bit like what Zoe just said, Andrew Bolt is what he is. And I don't think that advertisers can act very shocked at, at where they're placing their ads. They could, but what we should keep in mind too, and we saw this with American Express being a global brand, that the moment these global brands start deciding that they don't want to be associated with those sort of opinions or those sort of viewpoints, that becomes a problem for their agencies placing those ads in in those publications. I think that's the big risk that News Corp have to watch for there, that these consumer boycotts and agitating towards those global brands like Amex, Toyota and so on, that could become a problem for News Corp down the track. And finally, I can't seem to get away from News Corp on this podcast. Uh, Over the weekend, News Corp was reporting that TEN's new international owner, CBS, could be looking to put its stamp on TEN's programming with everything from CBS's own format Survivor to the popular Bachelor and Bachelorette formats on the chopping block. I spoke to 10 and they said they weren't even asked for comment on the article and they defended Chief Programmer Beverly McGarvey and said the reports in the Daily Telegraph were completely false and misleading. Now, I certainly hope they don't pull The Bachelor, but a lot of people, Zoe, are speculating that even if this article is completely wrong, CBS must be looking to make its stamp on 10's programming soon. We saw their first big move into the market in the shape of ending the sales relationship with MCN and moving sales back in-house to 10. Is this just part of 10 and CBS's growing connections? I think it is. I think if the last sort of two months is anything to go by, we're definitely starting to see CBS become more involved. We also had the announcement this week that CBS All Access would be in the Australian market in the fourth quarter of this year. So what we're definitely seeing is that CBS, now that you know they've probably had a time to look at the business, look at how everything works, are going to start making their stamp. In terms of programming, you know, Australian Survivor is a is a from CBS originally. That's why. Well, that's why. I we can only assume that there's some such big um, investment this year in the in the champions and contenders format. Uh, look, I think they will continue to support Beverly. Of course, they'll be wanting to put their own shows in, but I think if there's anything that CBS has taken note of, it's that this market is different to the US. That the Australian programs, what works in Australia, sorry, would 
might not work the same way in the US and vice versa. So you can't just come in and put in all US programming because it's just not going to work. And look, Zoe, you, you mentioned CBS All Access, which for those who don't know is a subscription video on demand service, a bit like Stan or Netflix. So you pay monthly to access it. I think what's really interesting with them trying to launch here is one, Australia already has quite a few markets and people are already feeling quite overwhelmed. They want a program that's on stand, but they also want one that's on Netflix and they have so many direct debits coming out of their accounts and not enough time to watch all the shows anyway. So CBS One has to contend with that. Two, they have to contend with the fact that they've made deals with other services here. So the Big Bang Theory is one of CBS's most successful shows around the world. But here, 10 doesn't have access to that. Nine does. People are also really excited about a remake of, and I'm definitely not a Trekkie, so Trekkies out there, forgive me, there is some Star Trek program coming up that CBS will have on CBS All Access. But here, I think it's Stan that has the rights to that show. So CBS All Access here might be sort of a CBS part access. It's not necessarily going to open all the same programming doors. There has been some speculation that if Nine is successful in its takeover of Fairfax, that means Nine will completely own Stan, which is currently a joint venture with Fairfax. And they might want an international partner to come in to make it a JV again. Zoe, would CBS be that partner or do you think they have totally committed to this all access thing? I I I think CBS have committed to the all access thing. I think it would look really, really bad if an international partner like CBS aligned with Nine, considering they own another network in Australia. What it looks like, what CBS all access looks like and and how that sort of fits in with 10's strategy, we don't know yet, but I would not see CBS going, hey, let's do a partnership uh, with Channel 9. Oh, and we're going to own Channel 10 as well. It just doesn't seem to to work. I could be completely wrong, but if there was an international partner, I, I wouldn't think it would be CBS in this case. Well, look, I mean, there are there are stranger things. We've got Nine buying Fairfax, but also Nine partnering with News Corp for the new joint venture, Your Money. I do agree that they keep putting these messages out there to the market about CBS All Access. So it would be a bit odd and look like a bit of a backtrack if suddenly they went, oh, actually, we're just going to do a a right steal with Stan, don't worry about it. So I agree they're committed, but I think we should also watch out because it does feel like at the moment anything could happen. Definitely. All right, well, I think that is about it for this week. We have lots to do back on the news desk. So thank you, team, for joining me. Thanks, Viv. Thanks, Viv. Joining me now in the bustling press room at Mumbrella's Finance Marketing Summit, we have Matt Hingston, Head of Marketing and Customer Experience at Greater Bank. Now, Matt has worked in the advertising industry both here and in the UK across TV and print media. Um, and for the last 10 years or so, working in senior management roles in financial services. Now, just a few minutes ago, Matt was talking about how Greater, the now Greater Bank, has evolved its marketing over the last 10 years or so. Uh, so... Matt, maybe the, the the place to start is I I I I was looking back at your LinkedIn profile. Um, how does one go from a sports reporter for Fairfax through to a uh, a marketing chief? 
Uh, great question, Tim, and, and thank you very much for having me this afternoon. Uh, um, I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. Uh, the sports reporter was a, a thing I did on the side uh, while I was going through uni, uh, doing communication studies at the University of Newcastle. Uh, it um, led me down a path of, uh, I guess, wanting to know more and, and the thing that I've always said is I've got two ears and, and one mouth, so should use those in proportion. So from that sports journalist uh, role through to what I've done today, I've just always gone in with uh, both ears open and, and listening and learning along the way, and somehow I've made it to uh, having a chat with you right here this afternoon. And something that struck me throughout the uh, the Finance Marketing Summit as the, as the days unfolded is the elephant in the room, which has been talked about a few times, has been the Royal Commission. You know, this this trust in the finance sector now greater bank is a mutual which puts you in a slightly different position so i suppose the first thing is as you've watched everything unfold as someone working in the finance sector how does it make you feel to 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 work in that sector when some of these stories come out uh, when you say we, we are um, i guess separate to that we, we are still very much included as, as a mutual we're regulated by the same industry bodies uh, but in saying that it provides us with a very unique opportunity in that the Royal Commission is almost doing our job for us. As, as a mutual, we don't have shareholders. We don't necessarily have to make a profit. Obviously, we do to ensure the business is, is viable and sustainable. But what we do with that profit is ensure that we reinvest that back into the company and back into what customers want, which essentially is, is what the Royal Commission is trying to unfold and, and really change the cultures of, of some of Australia's major banks to, to do exactly what we've been doing for, for close to a century now. Do you think there's any sort of danger that people just think can't trust financial institutions generally when they hear these sort of headlines? Definitely we can all be tainted by the same brush, which uh, means uh, Greater Bank has to possibly shout a bit louder about about our roots and and why we exist uh, and the fact that that's not changing. So you went from being a a building society to a bank and part of that route and something you talked about uh, today was um, you made some headlines with uh, as an organisation with having the comedian Jerry Seinfeld as a spokesman for for a while. Um, Actually, let's just let's 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 play a, a, a clip of Jerry in action. When it comes to your money, you don't want great. You want greater. It's like maximum. When I go to a drugstore to get pain medication, I want maximum strength. Figure out what will kill me, and then back it off a little bit. Where are you from? Yeah. Well, it's nice to have you back. The Greater Building Society has one of the So that was Jerry Seinfeld doing a fairly rare thing, which was advocating for a brand. Seemed on the surface like this massive coup. In hindsight, was it? At the time, it was, definitely. I, I was actually working for one of the opposition uh, at the time, and, and, and we saw it as a, as, a, as a great coup for the Greater Building Society at the time. It was nearly 10 years ago now. Uh, Jerry, as you know, had only worked for, for two brands previously, Apple and American Express. American Express, sorry. So it, it made sense that obviously he worked for a, a very small building society based in Newcastle as, as his third brand. Now, that, that was a coup in that it got international exposure even prior to the campaign launching. I think four days out, it had achieved millions of dollars worth of earned publicity um, and, and was seen in all the mainstream media in Australia and even reported through CNN in, in the US. So for, for the brand at the time, it was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, post that and looking back on that and the opportunity I've had to look back on, on where the company's um, come from uh, through that, that exercise, 
it wasn't, I guess, supported necessarily in the way it could have been. So I think there was a lack of alignment between where the company, what the company was trying to say through Seinfeld and what the company was doing. As an example, they had that national exposure, but didn't back that up with a, a you know, a full service online distribution channel to take advantage of that. Uh, it didn't expand its branch network um, as, as rapidly as it could have done. There was no product innovation at the time. So great exposure, didn't take advantage of it, uh, but we're starting to do that now. And one of the things you touched on in your presentation was that there was almost a disconnect between the roots of where the the brand had come from and suddenly this kind of american comedian you know it was a was it was it actually a good fit do you think i think it did its job in that it created mass awareness uh but that's not the job of marketing uh, marketing is there to ensure there's some symmetry and some alignment. Marketing Marketers have their finger on the pulse more than anyone as to what the outside world is looking for. And I think as marketers, our, our role is to ensure that what we say as a business and what we do as a business lines up with what people want. Uh, and I don't think Seinfeld did that for, for Greater Building Society. Did it bring in customers? It did at the time. As I said, through that mass awareness, it, it brought a few extra customers in. It also did... Um, create some questions amongst existing customers as to whether that was the right fit for them uh, and even some of our staff, to be fair. And in terms of your position now, you've gone from being a building society to a bank. How has the brand evolved? Uh, it, again, that's taken time. We've been careful with that evolution. We, um, that was a 12-month exercise uh, in changing that name from building society to bank. It was something that we didn't take lightly. Uh, we knew there was others that had done that previously. I think it was about 13 or 14 mutuals that had changed changed their name. Uh, and we ensured we, sorry, we ensured we engaged customers um, and our staff along the way with a lot of research to make sure that this was a right fit for them. The reason being is to ensure we remain relevant. Most people know what a bank does. Uh, not many people knew what a building society did outside of Newcastle, really. And we've, we've got a presence throughout New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we remain relevant to those, um, those communities, especially that the younger generations that are coming through that haven't grown up with a building society. And whilst we changed our name to Greater Bank, we haven't changed our roots. We're still here purely for the customers. No shareholders, not profit-driven. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Because, you know, you look at that sort of the... It's a wonderful life. George Bailey championing the the the, the traditional building society type model. Um, is is mutuality even as relevant now? Do you think? I think probably even more so. Uh, I think the, the the way the world is now with this sort of sense of global village. Um, we're starting to go back to those roots. I know, you know there's you know, vegetable gardens popping up in the backyard. More people looking at you know, things like the war on waste and how we can start to go back to that sort of that sense of uh, organic um, human nature that we we all know and and want to aspire to. Uh, and I think that that mutuality actually is is what that's all about. Being here for people. You know, we we hope that customers when they leave a branch or our website walk out in a better financial position than when they walked in. And that's a key difference, I think, between us and the banks and the major banks who are looking to make as much profit from them. And as a marketer, how do you think about your media mix, your channels mix now? I guess 10 years ago, TV would have been the no-brainer. Do you still view that in the same way? Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, definitely TV back in uh, back you know, 10 years ago was probably 90%, if not more, of our, of our media budget. That's dramatically changed. Uh, and TV, I see, is a, a support mechanism to, to help boost brand awareness but very much a support mechanism to obviously all of the online channels um, especially social media we use that 
use that very heavily. Uh, uh, and, you know, a, a lot, obviously, audiences have been fragmented through lots of different um, media choice. Um, we need to be mindful of that as marketers and can't rely on what we did historically because it just doesn't work again. Now, something else you quite entertainingly pointed to during the presentation was brand expectations. You talked about NRL, you know, hey, they hire felons. It's just what they do. But, you know, as soon as a, a cricket captain gets out one bit of sandpaper, he's in a lot of trouble. What What was the point you were trying to make around that? I, I have to admit, I did steal that line from uh, Dr. Adam Fraser, who, uh, who helped us through a, a sales conference recently, and thank him for that. Um, but for me, that really rang true, that the fact that companies or, or industry bodies or, or brands need to be aligned in what they're saying, what they're doing, what customers and, and people expect of them. Uh, I'll probably never get a job in the NRL because of this, but the the example there was there was there's an alignment there. So the, there's a, a, a expectation, I suppose, that what the NR what some of the players in the NRL can get away with is okay. Now, if you take something like cricket as an example, there is no way that uh, players in in that sport would be able to get away with potentially what some of the NRL players are doing off the field. Now, that's not to try to stereotype every single NRL player, by the way, uh, but it's uh, it's a very different in that cricket stands for something probably bigger than the sport. It stands for a fair go in Australia. And when we saw a, you know, a bit of sandpaper getting taken out of a pocket and put on a little ball, uh, all of a sudden people said, that's just not cricket. That's not being fair. And that doesn't stand up for what, what we think cricket's all about. And what's your view of the opportunities around sports sponsorship generally? Is it, is it a useful tool in the marketer's armoury, do you think? Very much so. At, at Greater Bank, we've actually partnered with the Jets, the, the A-League team, uh, and, and the Jets uh, W-League team as well. Uh, that has proven very successful for us, mainly because people are passionate about it. Believe it or not, most people aren't passionate about banking. That's something I try to reinforce to all of our staff internally. Uh, most people don't care, uh, but they do care about their sporting team. Uh, and a lot of people in northern New South Wales especially do care about their jets. And we're finding we're actually engaging with people through that medium, through that mechanism, uh, on, on all, all of those uh, marketing uh, channels uh, and engaging them with that passion. Uh, aligning our brand with something that they like means that they start to like us as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you work with your partners. Uh, the, one of the key agencies you work with, Newcastle Agency, Out of the Square. How does that collaboration work? Yeah, they've been fantastic. Obviously, we're, uh, they're locally based and, and very um, in very close proximity to us, so that helps a lot. Uh, I think they're probably in our offices more than they're in theirs. Uh, that's that's the creative guys, that's the account managers um, and pretty much anybody. They're, they're, you're right, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of it's a collaboration. If we need a, a meeting room, they're more than willing to for us to come over there and, and, and um, use, use their facilities. Uh, it's a true partnership. Uh, there are no secrets uh, and we, uh, as I said, often are communicating with them uh, every day face-to-face. I think that really helps, the the face-to-face connection uh, and and allowing them to see the inside workings of the bank um, helps a lot as well. Now, you've got one of those uh, job titles which is becoming increasingly common, Head of Marketing and Customer Experience. What does the customer experience bit actually mean in practice? Luckily, we don't use business cards very often because it doesn't fit on one anymore. Uh, but the customer experience bit is recognition that, uh, again, going back to our roots about what we're, what we're about. It's about ensuring that 
we provide fantastic experiences to our customers. Now, we do that every day. What we're starting to do is starting to measure that and starting to listen to our customers more proactively. We've got a voice of customer program, which most people have now as well, where we're listening customers, listening to customers every day through every single transaction and allowing that and those results to be shared across not just the sales network, but the entire organisation to monitor uh, and ensure that we are delivering on our promise of, of providing those great customer experiences. And it seems to be working because we've been voted again Australia's uh, Bank of the Year through Roy Morgan's Customer Satisfaction Rating. And with uh, the customer experience, a, a presentation right towards the start of the day was um, a Yale Creative's um, survey of um, uh, what, two surveys really, one of how financial marketers perceive the industry but also how the public do and one of the one of the arguments made in that was that these days an awful lot of the actual banking experience for your average customer is just it's in their app they're they're not walking into the store they're not picking up the phone so the app becomes you know almost the thing which most defines whether they like or dislike their bank bank and generally the technology is pretty good so generally that experience is pretty good which which might might be why approval scores are sort of holding up despite the royal commission do you do you recognize that is that the same for you is is do, do you think that technology is becoming more important than the face to face I wouldn't say it's more important. I'd say it's becoming more um, frequent in terms of usage. We, we've seen that ourselves. We've seen branch transactions decline uh, and obviously online and mobile transactions especially increase. But in saying that, human interaction is just as important, if not more so, because people are coming to either a branch or to a contact centre for problem resolution now as opposed to a transaction. So you need to have your best and brightest people there delivering fantastic experiences to make sure those problems are resolved first time every time. And that's something that we're very much focused on. That's not very easy, though, is it? It's not easy at all. Uh, but it's, as I said, something that's part of our DNA. So once it's in your DNA, it actually is, it becomes easy because it's part of our culture. I'd question whether it's going to be as easy for some of our, our rival banking institutions. And just finally, what, what next? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, we don't like to rest on our laurels while the uh, while the bank's going very, very well. Uh, from, a, from a marketing point of view, we're going to do some more brand exploration research to understand, uh, again, what our customers, what our staff and what our prospective customers think of us, um, where we need to be positioned because obviously the world's changing quickly uh, and we want to make sure that we're aligned with, again, what we're saying, what we're doing and what customers expect of us is in, in true alignment. Matt, thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thanks, Tim. So that wraps up this week's episode of Mumbrella Cast. Thanks for listening and speak to you next time. Oh, 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 oh,